Isaiah 56 verse 1. Thus says Yahweh. In light of that feast we read about last week and about how 55 ended with you shall go forth in joy. You'll be led in peace. The mountains and hills will break forth into singing and the trees will clap their hands. The thorns and the briars will give way to myrtle trees and cypress trees. In light of this great coming feast that God is going to do, movement three begins with thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner, the outsider, the stranger, the alien, who has joined himself to Yahweh, say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, for thus says Yahweh, to the eunuchs, uh, no, I missed the line, sorry. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Use your imagination to know what he's saying there. For thus says Yahweh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. What is prayer I've heard this answered so many times as this prayer is talking to God fair enough however I'm that annoying person who's never satisfied with an answer like that and I probe it with questions and ask all kinds of annoying things that make people actually explain themselves a little further so I would be that person that says well what do you mean talking to God How do you talk to God? Because when you tell me prayer is talking to God, in my mind, immediately I'm thinking about, okay, well, I talk to a variety of people and I don't talk to them all the same way. I don't talk to my boss when I'm called in for a mistake I made. I don't talk to him the same way I talk to my three-year-old. And I don't talk to a non-believer the same way I talk to a believer. And I don't talk to a grocer who's... Ron's good friend, the, veg, the veggies stalker at Staters. <laughs> well, you know, I don't talk to him the same way that I talk to Denny. 
You don't talk to your lawyer the same way that you talk to your spouse. And so when you tell me, just talk to God, I'm asking myself, okay, but I need to know my relation to this God. I need to know who this God is. I need to know what kind of language is appropriate. Just talk to him. Hmm. Okay, that's a good starting place. What if, what, if, what if talking to God wasn't you to a teacher or you to your lawyer, to your grocer, or it wasn't any of those relations. What if the best human example of talking to God that we have was the way that an infant talks to its parent and the way that a parent talks to its infant? There's not a lot of words and definitions going on there. A lot of, oh, you're so goo 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 And there's a lot of gurgles and grunts and cries and shrieks and give me milk now without those words. There's a lot of communication that happens between an infant and a parent, but it isn't all parsable. It isn't all properly grammatical. You can't define it all, but it's language. It's a certain communication. And what if that was the best human example of talking to God that we have? It sounds absurd because you and I, we outgrew that conversational style a long time ago. And by the time you're a toddler, you already outgrew that first phase of language. You are beginning to understand words. And, oh, this is called a Bible. But this Bible is a book, and it's different than this book because of this. Or, I don't know, I'm just thinking of things. Like, you're learning names. Oh, that's Ron. That's Randy. That's Denny. You're, you're, you're learning and identifying. And, oh, that's a car, but that's a bus. And so now language is becoming more articulate, right? It has information. Mom, why? All the time, right? They're trying to learn. Our language starts to connect things that we see and experience with the words that are appropriate to them. And then when we get even older, we start to learn a third kind of language, persuasion. And in its worst sense, manipulation. That my words don't just describe things, but they can actually move and motivate things. I can actually sell you something, get you to do something. Language comes in a variety of forms. And we outgrow the infant language. We've all are still using the toddler language to a degree, and we're using more and more of that third language of persuasion. But what if prayer was neither the language of information or the language of persuasion? What if prayer was returning to the childlikeness? What if prayer was returning to our parent? And talking to him like the dependent, needy infant. What if that language at the beginning was the purest form of relationship? Where words weren't as important as the fact that there was need and there was love and there was some bond. There was intimacy. If that's the case, prayer is one of the hardest languages for us as grown people to return to. And maybe this is why we struggle with prayer. 
Maybe this is why we don't pray as often as we ought. Maybe this is why when the disciples saw Jesus pray, they who were Jews and were raised praying all the time, asked him still, please teach us how to pray. The one who said, Abba, Father. Our text calls God's temple his house of prayer. And I want us to really, as a fellowship, spend some time in this passage because I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on (laughs) words and what we mean by them. So about a month or so, maybe it's two months now, who knows, about some time ago, Pastor Mike let you know that I am officially your pastor, right? Okay. It wasn't until that happened that I started wondering, oh, okay, I'm pastor. What do I mean by that? But more importantly, what does everybody else mean when they say you are our pastor? Because pastor is that role that has so many expectations on it and that you're not actually trained or qualified to do half of, maybe more than half of. Some expect you to be a social revolutionary. Some expect you to be an academic scholar. Some expect you to be funny. Some expect you to entertain them. Some expect you to just know what's wrong with them and just show up because you're supposed to know. You pray all the time. There's so many different expectations. What does it mean to be a pastor? Okay, so that's one thing, right? We're not talking about that tonight. Then there's church, the word church. What does it even mean to be a church? And what's the difference between a Bible study that has worship and prayer and fellowship and a church that has Bible study and prayer and fellowship? What's the difference? Are these just semantics? Are we splitting words? What do they mean? And so if if you say you go to church or you're part of a church or the church, we love the church. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the church. What do we mean? What does a church do? Why does it exist? So all these, it must be hard to be me if you're thinking. <laughs> um, I, Brittany and I were just talking about that the other day and she's like, or I don't remember how this went, but did, oh, I, <laughs> and then she's like, do you ever think it's hard to be you? I'm like, not most of the time, but all of a sudden I'm feeling like it's hard to be me. So. <laughs> um, as I'm talking, like my thoughts out loud, I'm like, wow, I must sound really crazy, but oh well. So one of the things I've done this month um, is I've hiked up Strawberry Peak in the morning. And there I read a few psalms and then I hike down. And so it's basically, a, it's just a big, long prayer walk. And it's been just a great, like I'd done that a few times, but never strung it together consecutively. And that was, it's been really cool. So it's been my time with God going, okay, what, what, what do all these words mean? Like, who am I supposed to be? I don't want to be who people tell me to be. I want to be who you have gifted me to be and are calling me to be. And I want to lead a church that is not what I want it to be, but what you are already making it be, right? I want to get in tune with that. So I've been having these walk chats and... One of the things that has emerged from it, and also is also coming from the help of some of my mentors too. Um, so you combine all these things. One of the things that's been emerging is the theme of prayer. And I looked ahead 
and saw, oh my goodness, Isaiah is coming to this place of the house of prayer. And I thought, this, this is it, Lord. Like, what else, why else do Christians gather? What is the other purpose? And I've been thinking a lot about it. So sometimes we gather because we just need social connections. Great, fellowship's part of church, that's great. But that's not why we gather. You could do a hundred more entertaining things to just gather. I mean, yeah, you could. Is it, is it for a sermon? I know a lot of people go to church for a sermon. Um, but those are also the people that get really let down by the sermon too. Because you hold it up here and that's where God should be and it's never going to be that. Um, yeah, we need instruction too. But I don't know that that's why Christians gather. Because I can get sermons, many of them a whole lot better than these, online. Right now. It's not the sermon that we gather for. It could be worship, but I'm going to tell you now that I think that what Richard and Sandy and Wayne led us in tonight, that that is prayer. It's prayer to music. It's sung prayer. It is talking to God. Some songs are not always talking to God. Sandy actually just finished with one where it's actually him talking to us. That's fine. But most of worship songs are prayer. We're talking. It's that, it's that first language of inarticulate. The soul is doing more than the words of the song are actually justifying. There's more going on than what you hear. Prayer is why we gather. Prayer is what we need. And I did some, I've done some research on the earliest church. And I say earliest church, I mean like between Acts and Constantine. So the first like 300 years of the church had sort of its unmessed with era. The powers of the world either ignored it or persecuted it. They never sided with it. And so it's really interesting to look at that period of the church because they did, (laughs) they didn't care about power. They did what they're supposed to do. And one of the things that I've been reading about is how much they devoted to prayer and that people of that time in a world they couldn't control yearned for prayer because it was something that they could begin to beg God for a little bit of stability in. And that they got together to pray. It was one of the major parts of the service was that they prayed together. It wasn't just the pastor praying and everybody saying, we agree and therefore we've all prayed. It was literally prayer circles. It was people raising their hands and doing gestures and praying aloud for one another and for their neighbors and for the influence of the gospel in their community. It was praying for their needs. They were not shy about the fact that they believed that there is power in prayer and that while the emperor sent his armies off to control the chaos on the fringes of the empire, the Christians for the most part refused to partake in that because they were usually pagan armies. And so they believed that what they were doing through prayer was more effective on behalf of the empire than Caesar's armies were. That they were able to send out larger armies more secretively all across the empire any time of any minute of any day through prayer. When the army of God's people got together and interceded and pleaded with him on behalf of their city and on their empire and on their neighbors and in their own lives. And that what drew the Christians together was that they prayed together. And what drew the outsider into the church, a time when the church grew, 
despite having absolutely nothing to gain from becoming a Christian, it was prayer that the outsider looked at the Christians and said, what is their power? Because a pagan would go to their temple and there one of the priests would read the prayers to the people and there would actually be a moderator to make sure he said the prayers perfectly right because if you had anything wrong, the deity would be upset with the prayer you offered. It had to be specifically detailed and correct. And yet you have this movement of Christians who begin to pray passionately, not passively while somebody else reads a prayer, but they begin to pray spontaneously and passionately and everybody participates rather than lamely watching the priest do it. And that there was a power and a unity in that. And that was one of the major factors of the outsiders saying, whoa, what are they doing? That looks helpful. Okay, so the house of prayer. Um, Look at with me again at verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Sometimes we think of prayer as boring. It's because you're probably doing a lot of it by yourself. Sometimes that is not the most enthusiastic exercise, although it is important. Um, Sometimes we've gone to a prayer meeting And you have a couple people that pray too long or about things you don't care about. And it kind of spoils the experience for you. But here we have a vision in the Bible that to come together on God's mountain, when we pray together, it's as if we've summited his mountain and we're in his house. That when we come together and pray, he will make us joyful. I wonder how much we've actually given this a chance. I was reading in preparation for this because I was actually getting really like excited. I was like, oh, I thought I prayed a lot. I thought my prayer life was decent, but now I'm like, no, it could be a lot better because it could always be better. So I was digging up some old books I had read before. Um, Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers, but what a lot of people don't realize is that he actually had a better prayer life than he was a preacher, and he had an incredible prayer life. He was actually known for walking along in the woods with a friend, and just, this was a normal thing for him saying, wow, what a beautiful day, come, let us rest on this log and thank our king for this day. Like, it was just, it just prayer was just like a second language for him. And um, he would pray, there, I have a book of his pre-sermon prayers, and they are at least 10 minutes long. I read those, and I think, I just read his sermon, and then at the end, it has his sermon title where he's supposed to begin it. And my mind is blown by the fact that the church has historically been a praying people, but I feel like we've kind of reduced it to, yeah, but prayer doesn't sell. Or to put it in more cultural terms, prayer isn't sexy enough. You got to do something that's that draws the crowd. And yeah, prayer doesn't sell. It really doesn't. We're going to do a prayer meeting tomorrow night at 7 p.m. What is what do people usually set up for? 10 or 12 chairs in a circle. So Spurgeon's other book, Only a Prayer Meeting, that's his ironic title. It has an exclamation point. Only a prayer meeting? Um 
he led prayer meetings all the time. And it's a book full of his addresses to his congregation at their prayer meetings. And he, um, it, one of them, I saw an excerpt. It said, yeah, but for our prayer meetings, we have to plan only for 1,000 or 1,500. I was like, what, Mr. Spurgeon? You get a, up to 1,500 people at your prayer meetings? Only 1,500 people? What, what was it like back then? Can you imagine packed in the Brooklyn Tabernacle? I think it was called the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Metropolitan Tabernacle. Thank you. Yeah. Um, can you imagine that huge church building just packed with a prayer meeting? There's no wonder Spurgeon had power in England and his church had power at that time. Because prayer was part of what these people were about. And the early church had power because of prayer. The day of Pentecost, we know that they were together. Um, after Jesus ascended, it said that they got together, 120 of them, and that they prayed for, I can't remember now, I think it was 10 days. And then the Spirit came upon them. It was a prayer meeting that launched the filling of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' followers. And maybe we lack the power of the Holy Spirit because we lack a determination to pray. And I don't just mean you need to go home and pray more. I mean as a people and as a group, praying together. Maybe. So I just thought that was crazy. We only have a thousand to deal with at our prayer meeting. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, Politics. It's not a house of politics. Did you notice that? I will take them into my house of politics for my house. End of verse 7. For my house shall be called a house of politics for all peoples. Unfortunately, our political situation has made that an oxymoron. You can't have politics for all people. Because our politics are so polarized (laughs) that you get half the people. Um, It's not a house of politics. But my friends, I'm sorry, but it often is a house of politics. We rant and rave for our party or on um, political issues or, or laws and legislations, and we, we use the church as if it's a vehicle to get this or that voted for. And that's been a mistake. It's been a mistake that the church has married itself to the Republican Party. I have nothing against the Republican Party in that respect, but it's been a mistake to marry itself with a political party. It's made the church political. One of the things that a lot of people can't stand about Christianity is that apparently to be a Christian means I have to be a right-wing Republican. Apparently. That's not true. And I'm sorry if you felt that way, because it's not true. Now, there's a lot of things that I get that why it united with the right-wing side. I get that, especially pro-life. That makes a lot of sense. But it was a mistake to side with a party. The church is not a house of politics. And it is not my job to tell you how to vote or what is the right political association. But sadly, I hear a lot more discussion, and there's nothing wrong with talking about politics at all, but I hear a lot more about breaking news than I hear about the good news. The house of prayer is the house of good news. It's also, notice, not the house of projects. For my house shall be called a house of projects. So one of my mentors, Eugene Peterson, had this problem where he took over, he planted a church. It grew really fast for three years. They built their church because they met in a basement. And then they built their church. And um, now that the church was built, all the congregation was losing steam and interest in the church. Like, okay, now what do we do? We got our church built. 
And so Peterson started looking for some help. He's like, what do I do? And his mentors at the top of his Presbyterian denomination, they told him, start another building project. And he wisely realized, that's a joke. Because then what am I going to do, build another thing? Like, how many buildings can you build just to keep people interested in church? That's not what church is about. Yet, sometimes, oh my goodness, I'm talking in a church that just had a building project. I do not at all. I just realized the irony of that. That's not at all aimed at that. It was a need. And of course, there are things, there are seasons to build, right? And there are seasons not to build. Um, (laughs) But if Pastor Mike's strategy was to fill the pews by continually putting out projects that the people are ambitious, let's get this accomplished. If that was his church strategy, that's not a church. There are better ways to use building funds than that. So we need to avoid this idea of projects. Um, And I don't just, like, obviously we're not struggling with, like, oh, we're trying to build and we're trying to raise all this money. But we aren't gathering for this thing. And once it's reached, we're like, what do we do? We need to have something that sustains the gathering of a people no matter what is going on in society, no matter what's going on in our lives. There is this, and it's Christ. And it's Christ whom we meet with through the word, yes, through music, yes, through fellowship and food. But primarily, we speak with him in prayer. It's not a house of politics. It's not a house of projects. It's a house of prayer. Now, notice who comes to this house of prayer. It said in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Now notice, this foreigner, which means he's a non-Jew, but he's joined himself to Yahweh. He's starting to worship and believe in the Israelite God, but let him not say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. In other words, there was a legit case and a legit fear for the foreigner who worshipped with the Jews to feel like at any moment he could be severed from the Jews because he's not the right ethnicity. Or he's a threat because he might bring in different views or a different thing into our Jewish community. So Isaiah is seeing this time when, no, 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 no. Ethnicity is not what's going to make the people in this house. It's going to be who they worship, not where they're from. So the foreigner will be let in, but also look at verse 4, for that says Yahweh, to the eunuchs. The eunuchs. And it was up in verse 3, he also said, let not the eunuchs say, behold, I'm a dry tree. A eunuch is someone who can't produce offspring, either by force or because they were born that way. Eunuchs. I want you guys to either listen or go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23. Here, Moses is giving some commands about the congregation, the assembling of the people of God. And here are some of the things that they expected then. Deuteronomy 23.1, Moses says, No one whose testicles are crushed, or I think the old King James said, whose stones are broken, are crushed, or whose male organ is cut off, shall enter the house of Yahweh. That would be the eunuch. They're forbidden from the house of Yahweh. Verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of Yahweh. 
even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of Yahweh. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter, those are strangers, may enter the assembly of Yahweh. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of Yahweh forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Petho... Uh, oh, my text got messed up here. Uh, well, that place of Mesopotamia. Weird, the font is like literally smudged. Um, to curse you. But Yahweh your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, Yahweh your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because Yahweh your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. That's a stranger. Don't let them in either. You shall not abhor an Edomite though, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of Yahweh. Wow. So there's these rules on who can't enter. But, but here's what Isaiah is looking at. Doesn't matter your ethnicity, ethnicity, doesn't matter where you're from. And it doesn't matter if you're a eunuch or if you have had some sort of deformity to your body at all. All are going to come to this house of prayer. That's what Isaiah is foreseeing. That's the hope he's giving to Israel. And that's the hope we have. And I, I hope that we are taking this vision and that we haven't created our own rules about who is welcome to the assembly of God and who is not. If people want to pray, let them pray. If people don't want to pray, they're not going to want to be at a house of prayer. They're only going to want to be there for the inter- entertainment or whatever they're getting out of it. But a house of prayer, Isaiah sees that prayer is what causes people to be seen as people. That when we are a praying people, we will have a different heart for those that we were taught to think differently about. Prayer enables us to look for people. Notice how he continues in Isaiah. Um, it will be a house. It shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then in verse 8. The Lord Yahweh who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Yeah, the house of Israel, he's gathering the outcasts, but he will gather others as well. Others as well. So why does God want a house of prayer? He wants a house of prayer because he wants the outcasts gathered to it. And if we're a house of politics, politics seems to make more outcasts than it includes. And if it's a house of projects, sometimes we get so focused on what we're trying to accomplish or what we're trying to be and do and all of our missional fuss. I'm sorry, not missional, but our mission and our vision statement that we forget to be missional, that we forget to reach out to people and let them come to the house of prayer. We forget that people are not means to our project, but they are someone whom we're to serve and love right there. Isaiah has a vision that the house of God is to be a house of prayer because he wants people in it and how do the lost come to christ how do people get a vision for what god wants for them it's when people come together and pray and pray yes i can tell you all this stuff. i'm talking to you in the second language and in the third language but we pray in the first language and that's where we're going to get the intimacy with god that you cannot get 
by passively letting me do all the work up here. Okay. Now, you guys might know that Jesus cited this passage, verse 7, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Do you remember this? Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, it's Palm Sunday. He rides in on the, this is right after Palm Sunday when he rides in on the donkey. He goes up into the temple and you guys know how he cleansed the temple. So Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple. What, what's the temple, by the way? What did Isaiah call it? The house of prayer. So he entered what should have been the house of prayer and drove out all who were praying. <laughs> drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, and here's our text, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now he switches to Jeremiah chapter 7, but you make it a den of robbers. So he cleanses it, he explains why, and then look at verse 14. Just like Isaiah saw the eunuch, well, this was... This was the expanded version of the eunuch. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Why did they come to him then? Because they couldn't come to him before then. They weren't allowed in. But here he comes and he says, this is a house of prayer for, as Isaiah said, for all people. Let not the stranger fear he's going to be kicked out. Let not the eunuch be refused entrance This is a house of prayer for all people. Now, when Jesus says that, we see a few things going on here. First of all, when he says that you've made it a den of robbers, that word robber is the same Greek word that's used of the two thieves or the two robbers that were crucified next to Jesus. And a lot of language experts say that it's probably, they probably weren't crucified for stealing. That was not a crucifixion offense. They were probably crucified for being insurrectionists and that the Greek word can mean insurrectionist. And so when Jesus says, you've made my temple into a house of, de- of robbers or thieves, it could be translated, you've turned this house into a house of political planners, revolutionaries. This is where you guys squabble about who's running this city and how much better it would be if we could do this or that, and how you're going to plan to take the zealots to fight Roman soldiers. And that's real. 40 years after Jesus says this, the Jews from the temple launched their first attack against the Romans. It was happening. Whether or not that's what he's addressing is the question. But the house of prayer was a house of politics in his time. It's also a house of projects. When he clears everything out, many people believe that when he's throwing out the tables, it's in the temple mount area, as a big courtyard around the actual temple proper. And this was what was known as the court of the Gentiles, the court of the non-Jews. They could not go past a certain wall unless they wanted to be executed. That was just for Jews who were circumcised and kept the Sabbath and such. So the court of the Gentiles was for the visitor, for the stranger. And that what the Jew, the Jewish priests did was that they moved um, the animals which they used to sell in the Kidron Valley, which was just outside the Jerusalem wall, 
they, they, they moved those animals and placed them in the court of Gentiles for more convenience for the worshipers. But what happened? Instead of Gentiles, you now have goats and sheep and rams and bulls. This is what we think of you, Gentiles. We, we, our, our vision for an easier form of worship trumps your ability to have space here. Jesus could have been clearing it out for that reason too. Either way, what we see Jesus saying is he echoes, this is to be a house of prayer. All right. How do we get a house of prayer? How do we build this? What are we to do with this? Did you notice the repetition of Sabbath in the text three times? It said, let those who keep the Sabbath come. Sabbath is not something that we go around making sure that you keep, right? It's no longer on Friday when the sun goes down through Saturday. And it's no longer you cannot ignite a fire, which means you can't start your car, turn on a light. Like, we don't do that anymore, right? At least the Christians don't. We don't keep the Sabbath that way. But what a Sabbath is, is it's setting aside space and time to be with God. Now, on one hand, that we don't have to keep this literal structured Sabbath is sort of a blessing and sort of freeing. But on the other hand... It doesn't encourage us to set aside a specific place and time to have that Sabbath, to connect with God. We need Sabbaths. We need to devote space and time. Because people who are worshipers will make space and time to worship. They will. Watch the football fan. They will make space and time on Sunday morning or whenever to watch football. And when I say they're worship, I don't, I don't necessarily say idolatry because you can worship your lover, right? You can worship your spouse in a good sense. Um, but you make time for the things you love and enjoy. Now, of course, you could say, yeah, but Sunday morning's more of a guideline for football. I mean, there is DVR. I can record the game and watch it later. So I can still go to church and watch the game. Exactly. You're right. That's a great idea, too. But what does the hardcore fan not like about that? Spoilers, finding out the score, or just the simple fact of you're not watching it as it happens because everybody else who you associate with is watching it as it happens. See what I'm saying? How, what would it be like if you had tickets to be in the stadium, but you used your tickets to DVR it instead? Just imagine this could happen. Everybody else was there at game time, but you watched it the next day in an empty stadium. Part of the power of having a sporting event at a certain place and time is that the people are together to enjoy it. My house of joy, right? Or I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. So yeah, sure. Sabbath is kind of a loosey-goosey thing. Okay. But just think about your time with God than being like DVR. 
Yeah, you can, you can still have time with God. You'll get by, but you're missing half of what it's about. Or think about um, a date. You know, you just, oh, you just want to be this person. You adore them, and you guys set up dinner this night, this place, this time. But what if one of you decided, yeah, you, you go ahead and go. I will go the next day. You, you get the point that the part, the purpose of a Sabbath is that we're, we're not just showing up whenever, but that we actually have an appointment because worshipers will worship, but they won't get the fullest joy without each other. And, and, and by having a church fellowship that you go to, yeah, you can pray in your bed before you go to sleep. You can pray in your morning devotions and your coffee when you wake up. You can pray while you're driving. You can pray before you take that exam. You can pray in all kinds of situations. And that's great. Don't stop that. But you can never get a prayer experience with a bunch of believers at the house of prayer unless you go to the house of prayer at the same time in the same place. There's something there that ignites the prayer life, that ignites your connection to God, that ignites your connection with each other. There's something there that the power is not just the sum total of those who are there, but it surpasses that somehow because the body of Christ is becoming complete. How is the house of prayer built? It is built one believer at a time praying with the other believers at the same time. That's how a house of prayer is built. It's built one prayer at a time. It's nothing that we can just turn over. Oh, yeah, we're suddenly... Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks is now a house of prayer from this moment on. We can say that till we're blue in the face, but you actually have to become that to make that true. That's only going to happen when we choose to pray together one prayer at a time. That's when we become a house of prayer. Churches are not vision statements. They may help. I love the vision statement of this church. Love what the, the twin priorities of Twin Peaks. Love others, love people. Uh, love God, love others. Yeah, vision statements are great because they give us a purpose. They give us something. To, they remind us what we're here for. But unless Twin Peaks community is loving God and loving others, that vision statement means nothing. And unless we actually pray and build a house of prayer one prayer at a time, our want to be a house of prayer means nothing. So it's built one prayer at a time because it is through this, it is through us gathering on God's mountain in his house of prayer that the outsider, that the stranger, that the eunuch, that those that are scattered will be gathered. It's when the people gather as a house of prayer that those people begin to matter and that those people find something that they're not getting anywhere else. Okay, teaching, you go to college and you get lectures. Woo! I'm so special. I'm doing something nobody else is doing. I'm obviously joking, because like everyone, you turn on TV, and there's some Joe ranting about something on the world. Um, You can go to a concert and get music. But where can you go to get prayer? One of the last places in this world, perhaps the only place there ever has been in the world, is the house of God. This is what we have. We have a language that no one else has. We have this intimate language with God that we need to learn to use. So we gather because we believe that we can only grow wide if we first grow deep. The house of prayer grows us deep. 
So that, the outsider, the stranger, the eunuch, and all that, then we can grow wider. But there's nothing beneficial about, oh, we're a house of projects. Let's keep growing and getting more people if you're not first a house of prayer. Because what are you bringing them to? Another version of another company that just happens to use Jesus in it, like he's the product? That doesn't make a lot of sense. The house of prayer will make us deep so that we can grow wide. The prayer will help us to search for people. The worship will get us on track for mission. That's the strategy. So I want us to set aside time and space to be a house of prayer. I want us to cause our Sabbath to be specifically prayer. Notice how verse 1 said, thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness. That's mission, right? Go do the right thing for people. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. But then look at verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing evil. You see how Isaiah is connecting this idea of Sabbath and prayer with mission and justice? Do you see how he's connecting those? That's why we need to create, we need to set aside space and time to build the house of prayer one prayer at a time. So yes, I think we need a commitment to be together. But I think we also need a commitment that we come together because we have a God to talk to. We're not coming just to hear about God. And we aren't going out there just to talk for God. But we are gathering here to talk to God. And I want to do my best to help reorient ourselves around that concept. So, yeah, sometimes it's hard to want to go to church, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday evening. And sometimes it's like, ah, my podcast is so much more enriching. But you can't pray in the house of prayer on a podcast. You can't. And that's the thing that the church is.